I think maybe that's one thing that's like really encouraging for people if you're kind of feeling like, oh my God, what do I do with all this AI stuff? I just learned how to lay out in Figma and I feel so behind <laughs> is that these paradigm shifts become equalizers for everyone, yeah, right? Like even, even someone who's been in this industry for like 20 years, you're like, I don't know what's gonna happen. Welcome to Deep Dives, my name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with David Hong, who's the VP of Marketing and Design at Replit, and before that, he was the head of design at Webflow. Now, he's also a writer, and his newsletter, Proof of Concept, has shaped much of my thinking about the future of design. So this conversation is very forward-looking. We talk about how AI will shape the role of product designer, the future of design tooling, and we even pretend to be PMs at Figma. But first, I wanted to start this conversation with one of my favorite topics, dynamic interfaces. Yeah, so dynamic interfaces to me is a concept that I think a lot of people know Jordan Singer, who was at Diagram now at Figma working on AI tools. Uh, I was inspired by that that name he coined, and you know we may have different like descriptions of it, but for me, when I think about dynamic interfaces, it's when now with AI, it's more possible for the interface itself to be a little bit more reactive and responsive in real time. And I think those are some of the things that's really interesting about AI. It's just like, there's the spatial context, device context, identity, and in this continuous runtime, the UI can iterate itself too. So we as designers are so used to like, okay, you know, we ship this thing to production, we test it, we A-B test it, we get user feedback and it comes back and then we iterate on it. It's all manual. And I think in a world where uh, personalization and spatial context with like multi-devices, it's gonna be really key for UI to be able to adapt within itself. And I think there's a world where you might have like a UI that's personalized to like your own theming. You know, we're starting to see a lot of apps be able to like provide custom themes and maybe that changes on the go. Maybe it's certain types of curation you have. So I think it's almost in a way thinking about like a UI being, being sentient now, right? Or kind of being more organic than just this static like piece of UI software that uh, that's that doesn't change. I feel like the 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 time in which it changes will um, will be a lot more rapid. So that's kind of what I mean by dynamic interfaces. I really like this connection between dynamic interfaces and a more personalized internet. Like that's the word that kind of sticks out to me. And you and you know a few other people have made the connection to Arc Boosts, which I do kind of yeah. think is like the first little teaser of what that might look and feel like and on one hand it's like really exciting as a user on the other it's a little bit scary for the role of a designer because like i got tired of the linkedin blue and i made it purple and it broke some things and now all the emojis are purple and it kind of looks weird and so there's this like loss of control almost for the person who's actually like authoring the uis how do you think this change impacts the role of a product designer? Yeah, that's interesting. I think for me, it's like, in a lot of ways, we've we've been through this before, right? And I think sometimes we, we forget what we've been through. 
or you know maybe we're in a part of our career where we haven't experienced that but do you remember like when uh when apple uh killed flash and then yeah. there was like all these things that we had to kind of change uh you know with the internet like um how we how we designed sites and experiences uh you know dark mode then became a thing that could like could change like a lot of things broke i think something like this is going to happen too and um you know i think uh yeah arc boost is such a great example they're doing incredible work there uh of course many people bring up uh like this is a very old school reference but winamp right being able mm -hmm. to like customize anything and everything to your liking and people talk about myspace and it's really interesting how like these old like principles of the internet are starting to kind of come back like because i don't know if there's like a more like research interest in it or if like the technology makes it so you can do it more at scale so i think for product designers i think a lot of what i kind of say is like you should think about what what should be designable what should be configurable right and you know there's probably some things you may not want an open-ended canvas for people to customize, right? You kind of have to think about, like, the rules of that ecosystem of, like, hey, what can the end user control, you know, and what are things that should be expressed by human, can be expressed by the AI, and really think about that. But that's kind of how I think about that. It's just like, okay, you know, there is a world where your brand guidelines might have just a certain level of control, and then the rest might be you know, adaptive to the end user. So it, it's something I think we've been through before, but it's just going to get like a lot more, uh, a lot more complex, you know, in terms of like what, what can be customizable. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to point to things like theming changing and having it be kind of fun and it's kind of feels like MySpace and play and all those kind of things. But something that you're a proponent of that I'm really interested in is this idea of you know dynamic interfaces, a more personalized internet, ultimately being a catalyst for a more accessible internet, which I think is like a really important angle to think about for all of this. So maybe can you unpack that a little bit and share like some of the ways that you see that coming to fruition? I think what happened in like what people like to call web 2.0, like in like the late 2000s, early 2010s is a lot of things became like very graph oriented, right? So like people stopped making personal websites and they had a Facebook account or had a Twitter account. And now all of a sudden, like all this engagement were really kind of gated in some of these um, social networks, which I think, you know, there's a lot of positive that came from that. But I think what what we lost is someone being able to like self-host and self-express in a way they want to where they have complete ownership. And, you know, there, there's a lot of exploration with that with like blockchain technologies. And I think with, um, with AI too, I think there's going to be more, people are going to be more resourced to be able to create these sort of things. So, you know, if I wanted to create my own like RSS reader to kind of curate the things I want to see in, in, the, in the internet that I want to build, uh, that's going to be more possible for people. So I, mm. I, it'll be interesting to see like what happens to like a lot of SaaS software, right? And there's like, uh, you know, the, there's going to be like personal software as a service too for people. Web3 is, is not really a buzzword anymore, but in the back of my head, I kind of do wonder like actually is 
are some of the technological advancements with AI going to make some of those ideas relevant? And even tying it back to the accessibility idea, like, man, if I was able to declare, like, hey, I am, uh, maybe I'm colorblind, or maybe I have motor deficiencies, and be able to input that at, like, the system level and have the websites that I use automatically respond according to my needs using these like dynamic interfaces and, and a, having the AI tweak relevant pieces of the UI to meet my needs, that starts to get pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about that. And, and, you know, that's actually an example I used in like what I wrote about dynamic interfaces because I'm colorblind. So oh. I think, you know, I, and I think Apple does such a great job with like the accessibility, um, like at the system level, like what if we could do that across all software stacks, right? And I think the thing that's really interesting with AI, and the thing I'm curious of like how it's going to become is like, you know, are we going to see these AI capabilities like, you know, there's a lot of like vertical integration with it, but what about horizontal across like all other um, tools. So imagine if there's a world where you kind of had like these sort of like preferences that are associated to, let's say your designer profile, but you go into Figma or Webflow Framer and it all kind of has that awareness of like what you prefer in that sort of workspace. I think that, um, I think that gets really interesting. You know, I kind of see AI as like an evolution in how we manufacture things. Uh, so for example, I always use like, uh, t-shirts as an example, like you could get a shirt from target. You could get a shirt from like Louis Vuitton. You could get a shirt from someone, a DIY one, right? It's all the same sort of material in the output, but there's like a certain reason people want to, people see a certain type of value associated with it. Right. And the value could be, it's affordable. The value could be it's high end or this person made this. I think that's going to be the same thing about software too. So like there are, you know, like indie designers and developers that I personally support because I'm like, I'm a huge fan of the software they build too. So this whole, like, it is kind of wild. Cause it's like all these buzzwords are like kind of converging together, right? <laughs> you kind of have like the web three, you have the creator economy. And I think there is this sort of, this sort of form of like patronage for, personalized software, like people who pay for newsletters, it's all kind of like, just kind of collide together. And I think there's kind of this whole world of like, how we view labor, how we view work, and just how, you know, how people think of that, you know, so you might be, you know, there may be a world where you have a full time job. Um, but you have some, like agents working for you, like with some of these like AI software that you're building. Uh, that you can make money on this side, or you have a bunch of those. Like, I think the way we think about like a career and work is going to be drastically different. It's a little scary, but it's also like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, AI is just like a really powerful tool to, to maximize like human ability. It reminds me of this tweet that I saw that I kind of forgot about, which is, Basically, the question was like, what's the equivalent of that handmade stamp that you would see on a consumer product in an AI world for software? I, I, I'd like to think about that, too. It's like, will we, will we pay a premium knowing that there was a human behind there that crafted every little detail when that becomes the minority use case? It's kind of interesting to think about. 
Yeah, and I think in in a lot of ways, because if let's let's presume if AI has the ability for us to produce goods at scale, right? It's almost like the the replicator from Star Trek. And <laughs> but then if something is kind of handmade or something that has this sort of like more intentional manual work to it, like there may be something where the value of that like inherently increases as a result of access to other things. So I think, I think originality and something that's like, I do think there's a world where you're going to have like a artisanal software, right? Like Mm. this is something like a certain, a certain designer built this software or like created this theme and because it was completely human made, there's a certain value to it that people like want. So I, I like to believe in a world there could be a win-win with that, right? So the things that people just need to get done can really be automated and some of this stuff. And then the things that where there's a lot of care and like high value to it, like it's going to be like elevated even, even more because of like the way it was created. I'd like to talk a little bit about design systems in AI, because I could see an argument where AI would push us to maybe one end or, you know, either end of this spectrum, which is basically like on one side, maybe AI just eats design systems and maybe even the role of a design system designer, because it's already pretty good at creating components and it's only going to get better. On the other side of the spectrum, I think you could also make the case that AI more so just redefines what we think of as a design system and like drastically expands the boundaries of what is encompassed in a design system where maybe that role is preserved, but it's more about empowering AI to generate these interfaces on the fly and respond to user needs. What's your take on that? Like, How do you see AI impacting the way that we currently think about design systems and the role of that person in the org? So there's something really fascinating. I was, um, I'm in San Francisco right now, and on Wednesday, uh, Noah Levin from Figma was giving a talk, and he was talking a little bit about how Figma thinks about AI and their design systems, too. And, uh, you know, they basically have a role, like someone like Jordan, uh, who's thinking of, like, AI design that sits on, like, the team that thinks about design systems, too. So I think... The insight I took from that is that like AI is kind of a way to kind of scale a lot of the work that you do in design systems, right? And you you talk to any design systems designer, and there's so much manual work they have to do, right? They're like, okay, I have to like update all these all these variables manually. Got to pull people in to like think about like okay, which corner radius should we use? And then, oh, also make sure I'm like updating all the documentation with the engineering team. Like what if that could all be automated, right? And I think, uh, you know, in a world of like dynamic interfaces, maybe it's more that these sort of like decisions or factors of conversation is like pushed to the humans to make decisions on that versus like having to identify that. So I do think there's a world where my hope is that AI kind of takes away the boring manual stuff that most design systems people may not love doing and presenting it in a way where they can scale themselves. So maybe design systems teams are are more leaner, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I I actually think like every team's going to be a little bit more leaner with AI. Uh, But that's not necessarily a bad thing because I do feel there's going to be like more companies created from AI. So yeah. like, you know, we talk a lot about internally, it's like, 
what if the Fortune 500 were 500 people, like individuals, as opposed to like these giant companies? And that's going to be a world where, you know, since you can do more with less, there's other areas to uh, explore, you know? And I think that's the thing when we think about like, the startup ecosystem too. It's like, there's not enough good ideas, right? Or not enough people exploring it. But now that people have the means to be able to do that, we're going to have such a wide range of like other things to explore. So I do think those are kind of two things that I don't like to try to predict things, but I could see it kind of trending that way. It's like, you know, some of the manual work in design systems goes away. It's a little bit more automated and perhaps teams are leaner because they can do more in that regard. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it's pretty easy to make the case for leaner teams, but I so rarely hear the like equal and opposite reaction, which is basically, okay, maybe each individual team is leaner, but the overall demand for design will increase as a result of AI. Like we're going to have more companies, but also the cost of software starts to approach zero. And as that happens, you have more companies who previously wouldn't have considered themselves a software company being able to make the jump and actually like pursue a digital product as like a core part of their offering. And so from a macro perspective, like that is something I, I have been trying to like beat that drum whenever I can, where it's like, yeah, it's, it's just a redistribution of talent in some ways and, and not a constraint on the overall demand for design. So yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, my hypothesis on this is because, um, you know, in the past year, um, you know, it's, it's the end of 2023 as we're recording this, uh, the industry has just gone through a really hard time with layoffs, companies downsizing. So I think you add that with kind of like people talking about leaner teams. Maybe yeah. people feel scared that there's going to be less opportunities. But to your point, I think, it, you know, we're seeing a lot of these things uh, start to bloom. So, you know, like from these sort of things that are really sad, I think like opportunity opens up. It just takes a little bit of time, but you, you're starting to see a lot of these, um, you know, I've seen a lot of designers uh, get laid off and then, um, you know, instead of finding another role, they, because of like, you know, what they're equipped to do or, uh, you know, just people kind of looking for more ideas in companies, they're, they're starting their own companies, right? So we're starting to see a lot more design founders too, which is exciting. So it's almost like, uh, you know, completely new. Like the goal isn't necessarily to um, rescale to where we were. The goal is to kind of like adapt to this new world. And yeah, if there's a team of like, you know, maybe you used to need a team of 50 designers to do a certain type of work and maybe all you need is 10 now. And as a result of that, you know, more designers are going to other companies to to help scale design. So so it's a win-win. But I think just like, um, you know, we've 2020s have been like just compounded with like yeah. tough thing after tough thing. So I think with AI, like, you know, if I, AI would have came at a place where the, um, the world wasn't as chaotic, maybe there would be a different sort of like sentiment to it. But I think just as it rose while people were losing jobs too, maybe that was the thing that was really hard for people to grasp or, or, or feel scary. Let's inject a little bit more optimism really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Because someone that. out there is listening. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe they're not even in a role right now or maybe they're not 
100% fulfilled or maybe they just have ideas for like what they think needs to exist in the world and are kind of like considering like maybe I could be someone that could make this jump. Let's can you just encourage that person? Like why do you think designers are well suited to be founders and and what are the uh, aspects of this like you know these coming years that are going to empower more and more designers to actually make the jump and put something out into the world and start working for themselves. If you really think about it, like designers, because of like our purpose and, and what we do to bring value to uh, our end users, customers, and ultimately the business, we see everything end to end. So when you think about a design founder, and I think this is why you know it's important to have design executives too, is to be able to think about company building. Like designers are some of the best company builders because, as a founder, that is kind of your role, right? You're, you you got to do everything from setting up uh, all the financials to the onboarding, hiring processes, and all the things that come with scaling a startup. And I think when you have a designer um apply that they apply that design lens like everything in the company it really fundamentally changes like how a company operates right i think the classic one i think a lot of us really admire right now is linear yeah like thinking about how they run like everything from from a design lens and i think that's the opportunity for design designers you know there's always that classic like design wants to seat at the table uh and now a lot of people are just building one, right? Build They're it. like, okay, I'm going to construct, I'm bringing other people to this table, right? And I think that's, <laughs> that's super exciting. So I think like, you know, for people who um, are very entrepreneurial, it, it, it naturally gravitates towards that. I think also it's like being entrepreneurial is learnable too, right? It's something that you can uh, kind of learn on the job. But I think that's what's super exciting is like, you know, in in my entire career, I haven't seen as many like design investors and design founders who are starting to kind of like uh, surface from all this. So it's going to be like a really exciting time. So I think for anyone who's like, yeah, just like maybe just the weight of like everything's felt discouraging. There's a lot of promise and like uh, what's blooming from that too. So I feel like, I feel like every week or every month I'm hearing like a designer maybe like start their own uh, agency again or starting their own like uh, startup idea too. I've never heard someone say entrepreneurship is learnable before. Can you explain that a bit more? Like what are the ways that a designer could start to invest in those entrepreneurial skills that might bear fruit, you know, a year or two from now when they're actually making that jump? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, one of the traits I actually look for a lot when interviewing designers to join when I run teams at a, like an early stage startup is just like, not that this is a requirement, but if I've seen they've started their own business before or if they started a side project, I'm really keen to learn more about what they experienced through that time. And it's because you have to kind of go through the ins and outs of like how a company works, right? Not at the maybe scale of a larger company, but you learn like how to do annual planning. You learn how to do biz dev marketing and in all the works. And I think that's what I mean by it being completely learnable for people too. So I think, you know, anyone who, um, you know, kind of feels 
like not knowing where to start, I think a lot of it could be, you know, starting a side project and just kind of like really something that's like, how do I learn about that whole life cycle of starting a business, right? Whether it's like forming the LLC and starting to like build a product around it too. Um, you know, like early in my, like the first decade of my career has been like mainly, um, you know, in, in the Mac and iOS ecosystem. And I, I always said I learned so much just by building an app and submitting it to the app store, understanding how to like sell and monetize that. So I think that's like, there's a lot of different like approaches you can take to kind of learn entrepreneurship, but it's something where, uh, you know, I'm always a big believer of just doing something small to kind of learn the lessons mm -hmm. from that. So yeah, I think there's like, those are kind of like a few things that come to mind for me. Yeah, it's definitely the ultimate learn by doing. And that's right. That's right. A, a few weeks ago, I was just talking with Adrian, who's a founding designer at Linear, and he said the same thing. He said the thing that they look for at Linear is, have you put something to the market before? Like, have you shipped something, gotten real user feedback, worked through that process of marketing and positioning and responding to like that initial, like, what's the market say? And you're right, like, it doesn't have to be that big. No. But yeah. I fully believe that everyone should have like a launch day under their belt. Like it's so awesome. Even just you know, stepping back from like the skills building side of it yeah. too. Like it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You said something earlier and like this little part of my brain has still been processing it. <laughs> so I'm actually going to just like, I want to go back really quickly yeah. because you talked about this idea of like a scaling the design system designer. And we talk about product designers a lot of times as like the voice of the user. And you made me think like, man, I wonder if like the future role of a design system designer is actually kind of like the voice of the AI in some ways, like really understanding the capabilities of the AI, what it needs, what it is good at, how it can like build within the system and the, you know, like the, the core product trellis that we've created. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's just been kind of buzzing in my head a little bit. Oh man, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this and it can get, <laughs> it can get a little weird too. Cause I think it's just like a world where, look, I think, I think when you kind of stack rank the, the priorities of values for me, I still think very much one kind of like human relationships. Uh, but I think, I do think there's a world with AI as it becomes more advanced and more human-like and more self-aware in a lot of ways, I'd be interested to see how that relationship forms, right? Is it kind of like that with a, a domesticated pet or something like that? Like, I know, like I'm telling you, it's <laughs> going to get weird, but I think like, I think is there, I often think about this cause I'm like, is there a world where like the AI is your collaborator and, um, but what does that world look like when there's more intelligence around it? Like, like, okay, I'm just going to say, it's like, what would it be like if an AI said no to like what you want to do wow. because of these reasons, because of like what it, what the inputs and trained is trained on. Right. And I was like, what if like, could AIs go on strike? Like, what are, what are these <laughs> what possibilities? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows, right? I'm not going to say, like, like what might happen. But based on that principle, I kind of think about a lot, you know, like, 
Um, you know, at Replit, we talk about like AI being your pair programmer or, you know, could be your collaborator the same way, like, uh, like, a you know, could be a junior engineer, like doing production stuff for you, or it could be like a senior engineer helping you think about architecture and that sort of aspect. Uh, I do think there's a world where we almost view the AI as like another input of collaboration along with the teams, right? So right now in the world, a lot of what we're interacting with right now is like one-to-one, -one, right? Like person to AI. Uh, but is there a world where like AI is part of multiplayer? And what does that kind of look like with team dynamics? How do we make decisions? with that. So I do think there's going to be a role or like really deep consideration on like, you know, working with AI in the open, like what does that kind of look like and really think about some of those inputs. So, um, you know, I think with, uh, um, you know, I, most of the AI I'm interested in is on kind of like the application UI layer. So when we get into language models, it's, it, you know, it's kind of beyond yeah. Kind of my, my expertise, but I do leave think me there's a, go there. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But I think there's a world where it's like, um, yeah, just kind of like, okay, you have this AI collaborator, like, what do they care about? How do they make decisions? Right. If like, there's a world where things become more agentic and automated in that way, there's going to, there needs to be parameters. Right. And it's thinking about like, um, and like, what are the parameters of decision making or recommendation for an AI? I, I certainly think uh, there's a role to kind of consider that because again, it can get pretty weird, you know, yeah. it can get pretty weird and, you know, it may seem weird now, but years from now, it may just kind of be part of like our everyday. So, you know, this is why I think, you know, when designers ask me like, should I be learning about AI or thinking about AI? There's such different sentiments and feelings on that. I'm always a person that's like the role of designers is to be to be early adopters in those things that could feel, you know, it could get gross or it could, you know, just really where things aren't like defined yet because we need to play a part in like defining like how we approach approach these things. I want to go a little bit deeper on this because I think it's much easier to understand what AI looks like as a daily collaborator when you're an engineer because Copilot's pretty good. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, people talk about what that would look like for design and how AI would impact the day to day of design. And some people kind of go down the path of like, well, it's, it's about, you know, automation and linting and other people like to talk about like, well, it's just, you know, 10xing your ideation in the early stages of a product and scaling creativity. I've played with like basically every AI generative tool that I can get my hands on. And like my number one takeaway is, at least for design, it's still first inning. Like nothing really feels that close to having a meaningful impact on my day to day. But let's like talk about that a little bit. Like when you think about this idea of like AI as a collaborator, do you have any thoughts on the what the breakthrough use cases might be for design and like what some of those first ways might look like where we actually are using AI as designers day to day in our role? Yeah. Um, I can start with what I think 
and I feel pretty bold about this. So where I think this is going to go is I think at, at some point, a lot of these authoring tools are going to be one thing. I don't think we're going to have a design authoring experience, developer authoring experience, written mm -hmm. authoring experience. And it's just like all one thing. And based on what you're trying to do, there's certain like modalities to that. And I think that's where it gets really, really exciting too. And I think I get a feeling with this when I play around with Jambot too, just on Fig Jam and thinking about like, you know, AI is like a co-brainstormer, right? Not just, um, yeah, great for linting and some of the automations, but like while I'm in the work to be like, I'm trying to... And this is where I think natural language is interesting. It's almost like the same way we like ask another designer in Slack or in in a Figma comment, like, hey, I'm kind of stuck exploring this. Like anyone have like any inspiration they want to pull in or things that um, the the company has explored in the past, right? And if the, what if there was a way to kind of like pull that all up and be able to explore that while you're authoring? And I think that's the thing that I believe is really important is just like, like how does AI kind of like work within flow state as opposed to being, you know, some panel or something different app that you're kind of going to access to, but being able to have that context in what you're trying to design and build and help you right there. So I think that's one is just kind of the, um, you know, being generative, like in context of what you're trying to do. I think the other one that um, I think would be pretty exciting is um, uh, AI really helping you give feedback on what might happen. So what I mean by that right now is like a lot of these generative tools, um, it's like A to Z, right? You're like the way you get the feedback loop is you have to like run the entire thing. Yeah. And see it happen. You're like, nope, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> you build like a 15 to... screen flow to realize yeah. that you were completely off. Yeah. You're like, okay, that took a lot of time, you know, but what if like, you know, in a world where like AI authoring tools could really, again, just kind of thinking of different parameters, different like possibilities and explorations. And you're able to kind of like scrub the timeline of like, okay, these are the types of things I want to refine based on what's being generative in that regard to then like, get the output that I want, right? Or maybe I want like three different outputs um, based on these screens that I have to create this type of um, experience and it can kind of generate that. I think that's gonna be like the game changer for me with designers. It's like, it's kind of like, uh, um, not directly, but I think a lot of people know uh, Brett Victor's like inventing on principle, like where he's got the principle of like uh, the the creator being able to see feedback and like you know what will happen in the compiler or like that. There's there's probably like a design equivalent for that in like building software. So it's like okay, instead of like you know, and this could be uh, images too. Like instead of like running the entire thing, I want to see the different possibilities and get feedback along the way. Cool. to get like a more refined output. I really like that. You also said something else I really like, which is kind of hinting at this possible convergence of tooling and maybe the lines between 
you know, authoring tools on design and engineering started to get pretty blurry. Mm. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, yes or no, <laughs> in 2025, do you think the majority of designers will be regularly contributing to production code bases? Yes. Hmm. Uh, to what extent, I think will be really interesting, but I do think it's kind of funny, right? It's like, we're going back to that, should designers learn the code? I um, know. <laughs> man, and I, um, you know, I think one thing that's really, people ask me all the time, they're just like, it's really wild you went from Webflow to Replit, so like from no code to like, the heaviest of code, yeah, right? All the code. <laughs> yeah, all of it. Yeah. And I think I you know what's interesting about this is I think with AI it's like they're not um they're not at odds with each other, right? I think it's just gonna be like a spectrum of things. So I do think there's a world where me as a user, let's say I'm more like visually oriented or I'm still pretty early on my development journey. There is a possible world where, like, I'm entering in the same authoring space as someone just writing raw code, but I have visual affordances to be able to help me ship production software. And, you know, that's the thing about Webflow, right? It's like, they, like with a lot of these experiences on the front end, these things are getting shipped to production, right? So why not, like, pull that into how we build, like, application software, too, with some of these guardrails and affordances? So... Uh, I'd say it's like uh, BYOA, right? Bring your own abstraction, which like for some people, it's like, hey, you know, the way I kind of think about like the console and just other things I need to do to like debug software and, and be able to ship it, maybe it's more visual for some people. And I do think it's all going to be that one um, authoring experience, like, you know, where it's not like a, it's almost like an IDDE, like an integrated design and dev environment, right? And, uh, you know, because of, like, a lot of the breakthroughs we've had in, like, collaboration and uh, work being in the cloud, I think things can be, the spaces can be more contextual for certain people, too. And I think that's exciting. So it's not like, you know, we don't have to make rigid decisions anymore. We have to kind of make the best decisions for what will set people up for authoring. I think you have probably, you know, as robust a perspective on authoring tools as just about anyone, given your background. Like, I'm really curious to hear, based off of some of the things that you just said, like, how do you see the landscape for design, but maybe more broadly, we can refer to it as authoring tools. How do you see it evolving? What does this convergence look like in practice? for those Apple users out there, you almost see like each version of iOS slowly become more like Mac OS. Yeah. And a lot of Mac OS starts to feel more like an iPad experience. Like, okay, they both have stage manager. They both have these things. And I think these sort of like UI evolutions kind of happen over time that we might not even realize it. And I think that's what's happening with authoring tools too. Like, you know, Figma with dev mode starting to bring some of this stuff in. Uh, you know, some of these like uh, authoring canvases becoming more powerful to, to do more things. Uh, you know, being able to bring uh, your Figma components uh, into Webflow. Uh, and I think this is one thing that I really care a lot about and really believe and hope that 
the industry continues to invest in this is just software interoperability, right? Like I get certain companies want moats and other things, but I think providing access across tools is going to be like more of the way to like really bring all these authoring experiences together, right? So I don't know if there's going to be a world where like someone builds this one like authoring tool that accommodates all these use cases that everyone needs. You know, maybe, maybe someone will kind of emerge with that and we all adopt that. Or I everyone think, tries. Is yeah. What I'm more oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. worried yeah. about is that every yeah. single one of these tools tries to be vertically integrated. Yeah. And it may not be, you know, it's not, it, it may not be helpful. You know, what I see maybe happening more is just like continued more software interoperability. I think more, uh, you know, more standards across this stuff. So like standards in like formatting and document formatting and, and some of these other things um, where then like, based on the company or the person, like based on your tool stack, there's ways to be able to like weave these experiences in where it feels more like one, like it's almost like microservices, but for tools that you're using and these things like play, play nicely together in that regard. I think that's what's going to like look more like, so like a lot of these tools have more extensibility and in, in integrations to be able to do more like webflow just launched like the apps right so mm -hmm. like being it just got it got way more powerful like super quick right and i think that's going to be really exciting for you know all these other tools out there too speaking of other tools you mentioned dev mode i want to do like a fun little hypothetical here yeah let's yeah. pretend for a few minutes that we are pms at figma <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. What, uh, how would you approach integrating AI into the core product? It's going to sound kind of funny. Like, but I think the, I think the way, I think the way to win there is that it's hardly noticeable. Right. So in, in Noah's talk, he talked about this where he's like, there's like two UIs we know right now with like AI, right. It's the, it's the sparkle from the magic wand yep. like, that we see, <laughs> or it's like this chat box. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can kind of discover, like, again, just kind of what we were kind of talking about with, like, authoring tools, it's like, if AI can be so, like, seamlessly integrated, where it's, like, very contextual in what you're doing, right? And at times it may show up as, like, a UI button or more, like, um, you know, different controls we're used to. It could be, like... Um, yes, no inputs, like natural language to kind of help refine that. I, I think that's the way for Figma or, you know, I, I mean, you ask, like if I was a PM at Figma, right, I think that's what I would kind of think about too, is just kind of like, um, because I think there's a world of um, really understanding existing behaviors and what patterns have already been created. This, that's probably a reason why a lot of authoring tools kind of look the same, quite frankly, right? You yeah. have your left panel for kind of looking at layer navigation. You have the right to be able to inspect and like change properties. To just change that randomly, you know, that's a new behavior people have to learn. So I think the more you can kind of really push on like existing behaviors of what people have, um, you know, right now, um, I think Adobe's like fill generator is a great example of that. It's just like stuff you're, you're, you've known, like for me, I, like I've used Photoshop for like, like 20 years at this point now. Right. And it's just kind of like you, 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 
the familiarity is paired with like the new like capability and power and yeah and then just kind of going back to that like how ios and uh mac os is starting to blend i think that could look the same for ui authoring tools too where the the subtlety evolves over time that uh that we just slowly get used to it versus it being like here's this brand new interface you have to learn you know in that regard so i think blending blending it with existing behaviors is kind of like what i would push for yeah and it's tough i mean like I think a lot of the advancements in the power tools sometimes come at ends with, you know, one of Figma's core missions of like making design accessible, like increasing the number of designers. Uh, I do think they've done a really good job of it. I actually wrote mm-hmm. down a quote of yours from one of your articles that I thought was really brilliant, which you said, great software authoring tools, templatize and build guardrails in the right places while allowing complexity for those who need it. And that's going to kind of be the key with AI probably. And I, I have full confidence in Figma, even just looking at the way that they handled variables, which is like yeah. a really complex feature yeah. in many ways. And I specifically think of like the act of binding the visibility of a layer to a variable is a right click action on a single icon without a tooltip. I mean, it's like as hidden as hidden gets. And that's the kind of trade off that you need to make. And I think it is a good trade-off that they are making. What about the production code side of things? Like, do you see dev mode as a step in that direction? Because I think it's like, I almost expected it to be more clear. If you think about Figma versus Framer, for instance, like who, I don't actually think this is Framer's mission. I also have no insider information, but like, Man, that's a much more clear path in some ways for design to contribute directly to these code bases and have the pure blending of these tool two tools. Whereas Figma almost leaned in and built defensibility around like the collaboration points between these two types of distinct roles. Yeah, I think there's there's two primary modes of thinking in this, and I honestly don't know how I feel either way. I, I, but I think there's kind of the world where it's like. Does the role of like the product manager, engineer, and designer become like one person and it's completely interwoven and fluid? Or is the goal to have like each of those three think more like the other or have like less friction around it? To me, the latter is like what dev mode kind of represents, right? It's yeah. not just completely replaced to be like, okay, like, you know, you're going to code in here now and in that capacity, but to be able to bring that, um, that collaboration much deeper and be able to kind of reduce that friction. Um, that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. Like the flattening of the stack. It doesn't feel like dev mode is a push towards flattening the stack. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, with Figma, a lot of it's just kind of bring, uh, design and collaboration across the entire company too right so there's a Mm -hmm. lot of like use cases too like you know uh you know not everyone just builds like production level software like a ui for production uh in figma they do like org charts they do like uh marketing slides and other things too i think uh you know maybe there's other modes to be able to like go from 
that design concept to moving it in action a lot quicker, you know, in that yeah. capacity. So for context, for people listening, you know, not only do you have the background of all the tooling roles and, and Webflow and Replit, but you're also an angel investor. So I kind of want to tap into that perspective a little bit as well. And so maybe we can zoom out and, and think a little bit higher level. I'm interested to hear your take on where you think value will accrue as a result of the impact of AI. Like, does it basically, is it all going to flow up to the incumbents or are there other opportunities in the tooling space that you're interested in or maybe you just have your eye on? I think a lot of these UI breakthroughs, both are AI breakthroughs through the UI interface. Uh, it's probably going to come from a small company. It may not come from like mm. a gigantic company too. So I think that's the thing where, you know, as I talk to early stage founders, that's kind of the area I invest in. It's like seed and like pre-seed, like very, very early. Uh, people always ask me, they're like, what if like, what if Figma does this, right? Or what if Google does this? Yeah, already? this is just it's a feature. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think there's, you know, there's maybe certain niches that can be unlocked, maybe certain patterns or, you know, types of implementations that a smaller team, because they have such less like business stakes at because of the si size they're at and where they are, you know, they're still being able to explore. I think that's like really compelling too. And I do think the value of, I don't, I, this is just kind of like my, 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 my read on the land, but I know like a lot of times, like it's a very niche area to invest in and sort of like the, like authoring tools and, um, for design and dev tools. But I think it's something where, um, because of like, AI and the capabilities it brings, I think that sort of tooling space becomes more compelling for for people too because they see how it can can scale businesses, right? And I think a lot of times maybe one might invest in like, well, can this business scale? But in this case, you're investing in like technologies and capabilities that can scale businesses. So then all those scaling businesses will be using this product, you know, and it's like um, really the infrastructure um, for a lot of other companies to be successful. Yeah, it reminds me of something. I don't know if you listen to Packy McCormick from Not Boring. Yeah, yeah. He has yeah. this idea and his thesis was about Google, but I think it applies to tooling as well, which is basically the correlation between how well positioned a company is, basically like the size of their moat is directly mm. correlated with the extent to which they can be disrupted. And it's kind of interesting to think about that from a tooling standpoint, where it's like, man, Figma has a heck of a moat right now. Dev mode is a heck of a moat. Mm. But also AI is, I think a lot of people feel confident that calling it like a paradigm shift. Like this is a big moment in technology where those moats can um, you know, make it difficult for larger companies to mobilize. So I'm also really excited to see the different startups that emerge, especially as more like consumer-facing use cases pop up too. Like we're right now, we're just kind of at like the architectural levels. But man, yeah, it makes me want to be an angel investor. It, it looks really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a really interesting time to see what uh, what companies are doing. And again, just because of like 
there's more people able to do it now because of these shifts in the ecosystem, uh, which is really exciting. But yeah, it's definitely one of those paradigm shifts. You know, I started my career with the the mobile paradigm shift and uh, I think maybe that's one thing that's like really encouraging for people if you're kind of feeling like, oh my God, what do I do with all this AI stuff? I just learned how to lay out in Figma and I feel so behind <laughs> is that these paradigm shifts become equalizers for everyone, yeah, right? Like even, even someone who's been in this industry for like 20 years, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I'm just telling you what I think might happen, but it could, you know, someone might have a breakthrough that just changes um, how we think about things too. And it's like happening every day. So it's one of those things where, um, you know, as long as you have kind of build that intuition, have some of those core skills, I think like prototyping and systems thinking are like probably the two biggest ones. Like how do you understand, um, you know, computation and like state management and like how these sort of systems work and being able to, you know, build tangible prototypes around that. I I think, I think you'll be fine because it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, yeah, like nobody really knows what they're doing, uh, here and trying to figure it out too, whether you're, you know, like three years into your career or like 20 years in. Let's go even deeper on that because I, I do think a lot of people are listening to this and they're like, okay, all of this sounds exciting and inevitable. Not what kind of thing. And maybe we could actually even create a hypothetical where let's say that you have taken on your, the 25 year old version of yourself as a mentee and you know, you're this ambitious designer, you got, you know, you got skills and you want to wake up Monday morning and take steps towards preparing yourself for this future. What's the advice that you're sharing? What are the next steps that you're pushing yourself? Oh, to man, I don't know if I'd want to mentor 25 year old me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think for me, it's like, um, this is going to sound like a cop out, but I think it's so true. It's like, I think the, like, Play, tinker, and explore, right? And I think the thing is, like, what I hear from a lot of people, it's like, I don't want to explore AI, maybe, or just insert potential paradigm shift because I don't know what to build, right? Or there may not be a use case for it yet. And I think a lot of times with these paradigm shifts, it is going to feel like a solution looking for a problem, right? So, like, in the early days of the iOS app store, there were so many useless apps right there's like the the beer drinking app yeah. and like the fake lighter, like the lighter yeah and other things <laughs> vr everyone had the tightrope walking app and you know and i think that's just a thing to like maybe like just don't put pressure on yourself in like trying to figure out like what the solution is but also explore the possibilities and i think that's something like we as designers maybe forget because we're like oh we gotta like think about the end business and the customers and like there is a thing just like like what cool thing can i make from this right and that mm. it could blossom into something completely different that becomes viable you know so like um playing playing leads to practicality i think in a lot of ways uh so that's where i'm kind of like you know explore different technologies i think the thing that i really um got a lot of value in my early career was, uh, you know, I did a lot of like UI prototyping and like, um, uh, you'd learn tools like Xcode as a result of that. And then it all kind of led up to kind of like the type of like domain focus I'm in 
now. Um, and I think that's like something, especially for like people kind of starting out in their career, kind of like, you know, like the, the 25 year olds out there, it's like, there's so much pressure to like move so fast in your career and like achieve all these things. I think, uh, you know, the best way to succeed is being able to like almost like slow things down too. So it's like, okay, when this paradigm shift happens, like just playing around with stuff. But I think being able to have that mindset of like, you know, really exploring a lot of these new technologies and seeing what might be applied uh, really helps because a lot of that, uh, you know, may stick down the road too. I love the idea of play. I think I want to add one piece, which is, you know, we kind of joked about this question of, you know, we're, we're coming full circle back to shit designers code. <laughs> I think the answer actually is like, no, because the ROI of learning or spending time learning syntax is like so small now that AI can write it for you. Mm. I do think the value of technical literacy has never been higher because man, with just the basic mental models and understanding of how front ends actually work. Like one of the most fun ways to play is to actually build. Like yeah. one of the most exciting moments that I've had as a designer in the last year was the first time that I used ChatGPT to write a basic JavaScript function to open and close a modal with a little bit of an interaction and like, you know, tweaking the icon on click. It was amazing. I mean, it was so empowering and, and eye-opening and kind of, I don't know, sparked some motivation for the future. Yeah. I'm curious to hear like maybe even how you react to that take, but also like as someone who has straddled this line of no code and you know, Replit, which Webflow actually was, I give Webflow all of the credit for teaching me front end, all of it. Yeah. Because it provided this visual layer that maybe even is getting lost with Framer is my hot take. But Interesting. are there strategies or ways that you think designers can improve this technical literacy to give themselves the ability to even play with more code driven applications? Yeah, definitely. It's funny when I was at Webflow, I'd always say like no code to no code. And that's so spot on, right? It's like people took me too long to get that, but I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't want to literally spell it out for you, but, <laughs> yeah. but I think, I think that's like, so, so so important for people too right and it's like um you know you shouldn't learn to code because like someone mandates it to be part of your job uh you should do it because if you find joy in building something and kind of being able to see that through that's the intent right and i always say like uh you know you, you used the the technical is the the word for this um you know i say this a lot at replitudes that i think I think computation is the new form of literacy for people that are trying mm. to be able to comprehend. So, um, you know, being able to do that at scale is super important. Yeah. And I think for me, it's just like as a designer, like um, I want the designer who is an architect to really think to know a lot about like building infrastructure. Right. I don't expect them to like do the thing. But probably the same way, like if we are software designers, which it sounds like that's like a title that's getting pretty popular again, like yeah. we should kind of understand the means of software, which a lot of that is code and compute right now too, right? But I do think it's a thing where, like if you think about it, like the way we write code is pretty archaic 
in a lot of ways too, just in the, um, in, in terms of like syntax and other things too. So now that we have kind of like this interpretation layer to really like help us get there, I, I'm the same way too. It's just like, it's been a while since I've, I've written some code, but now at REPL it's starting to code again. And it's just nice to use like, you know, our AI capabilities and be like, okay, like now I'm focusing on like what I'm trying to build. I don't need to worry about like, you know, if I need a semicolon or a call yeah. or a comma. How to write a ternary operation yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, okay, like I can, um, you know, I can focus on the job to be done, right? And I think that's the thing. But still with that, still with everything that, like you described, like what Webflow does well is like, it, it teaches comprehension and literacy along the way in a way that you may not even be aware of, right? And I think that would be kind of the thing for, designers is like yeah you may not be like learning complete syntax or other things like that but you kind of know like some of the basic um some of the basic principles of writing software that you you know through natural language you're able to achieve that a lot quicker now i never thought about the connection between the technological advancements and potentially the uptick in the word software designer over product designer as how we even think about our role. So I really yeah. like that. We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I want to just check in. Like, is there anything else on your mind that you want to share or any other questions that I should be asking before I let you go? It's an interesting time right now to be a designer. And I think, uh, you know, I'd say for people who kind of don't know where to start i think you know start playing like have conversations with people and really kind of figure out where it goes because again i do think like this with this paradigm shift like a, a lot of the ways we do things is going to really rapidly change so just on the day-to-day -day, you know like we kind of adapt and evolve to it but i do think there's a world where um you know, like, again, paradigm shifts are equalizing moments for people where you may have not had an opportunity. Like, I got into my career because I knew how to design UI in Photoshop and, like, could create a lot of, like, skeuomorphic UI for iOS, right? And I think with whatever that is for this, like, you know, um, these become equalizing moments, but it kind of requires to kind of really get out there, build things and explore. And, you know, and I think an opportunity might open up. So yeah, really excited. I'm personally like really optimistic about uh, where things are going and yeah. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yeah. I had, I had such a great time. Thank you so much for having me.